So welcome to Proverbs. This is Doug Taylor. Appreciate your joining us again uh, for this class. Uh, we're going to start uh, tonight at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. Uh, before we do that, just want to make sure and check and see if there are any questions from anything we covered last week or questions that might have come up during the week uh, that you would like to cover. And assuming that there are none of those, but feel free to type them in as we go. Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and begin. Again, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. And the verse reads, The way of life is to teach Musser, uh, and I think it's sometimes translated to guard Musser, and to leave Musser, or uh, the Hebrew word is tahacha, will cause you to err. So the way of life is to teach Musser, and to leave Musser will cause you to err. Now, uh, obviously we're going to have to ask ourselves the question, what is Musser? Uh, because that's a, a new word that we may have touched on, but we haven't gone into depth about. Um, in looking at this, I know the first uh, half of the verse uses the word Musser, the second half of the word, uh, excuse me, the second half of the verse uses the word in Hebrew, Tachacha, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, in sharing over his uh, interpretation of the verse, of the verse, treated those the same as synonyms uh, of each other. Uh, and Eva, you have yeah instruction uh, in your version. That's one of the uh, the translations for that word. Uh, so there are probably there there may be interpretations that um, that look at um, uh, those words differently. Uh, but at least initially we're going to consider them uh, to be the same. So, uh, the, the Erie has said that the only test for truth is questions. So, let's begin with my usual first question, which is, do you have any questions about this verse? Uh, and we want to look at questions before we try to come up with answers. Any questions on the way of life is to teach Musser, uh, and to leave Musser will cause you to err. Any questions about that? Other than the question of we better define what Musser is. Okay, right. Peggy, good point. We've, we've got to clearly define what Musser means. Okay. So, let's start with that. I would also... Um, I would also ask a couple of other corollary questions. It says the way of life is to teach Musser. Well, what is the way of life? Uh, I mean, we use those words and we, you know, we kind of have a general idea of maybe what that means, but in Mishle we want to be as precise as we can. And really, part of the, the purpose of our approach is to hone that part of our thinking that makes distinctions between one thing and another. This is what scientists do, is they, they hone that part of their mind that distinguishes between one thing and another thing. Um, so, for example, there's a difference between a storm and a hurricane. Uh, and some people might use those words in a loose conversation interchangeably if they were talking about a particular hurricane as a storm. But in fact, if we looked at those standalone, those two words uh, can have overlapping meanings, but uh, somewhat distinct. So we want to be able to get 
pretty uh, pretty specific here. And then the other thing would be when the second half says will cause you to err. Well, what does that mean? Uh, what kind of error will we will we have? So I would like to start with a definition of uh, what I understand Musser to be, and this is based on uh, the learnings that I've received from uh, Rabbi Moskowitz. Musser, uh, and, and Eva, you've asked the question, does wisdom come in here? Yes, I think we will see as we unfold this definition of Musser uh, and what that's all about, how, uh, how wisdom folds into that. Musser, I will suggest to you, is the science of the consequences of your actions. It's, it's understanding the consequences that your actions will have, and so in a way, in your own life, it's like an early warning system or an early detection system. Uh, you know, people uh, have those set up for everything from burglars to, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And they're basically designed to give you warning about something that's coming that probably uh, you would want to know about and may uh, produce difficulties for you if you don't take care of it. Uh, and so Musser is about understanding the consequences of your actions because uh, if you don't take that into account, then you can make mistakes which will have very uh, unpleasant consequences for you. So Musser teaches us how to make correct decisions in life and how to look at life correctly. So it's really the framework in the way we think. And it works only when the learning actually affects our lives. Because as we've said before, if all we do is like gather information, it's just like a donkey carrying books. Yeah, you've got a lot of facts, but the facts don't lead to any change. Uh, and that's what you need in order to really have uh, change occur in your life. So I'm going to suggest that there are two parts to Musser. There is the science of the consequences of your actions and, this, and the science of life that actually helps you. There's the science itself and then there's the application of that science. That's when you ac actually apply it to your own life. So for example, Suppose you study physics. So there's the science of physics, and then if you build, say, a car or an airplane, that's the application of physics. So Musser is both the study of the science of life and the application of it. So it's, it's two parts. So I'm going to suggest that in the first half of the verse, when it says the way of life is to teach or guard Musser, uh, uh, that is, the, the way of life is, is the best life that a person can have, that is to learn the science of life and to guard it and keep it, and that way a person makes it part of himself. So, so that, I'm suggesting, is what the first part of that first half of the verse is, is saying. The way of life is to learn about the science of life and to guard it and to keep it. Now, if someone leaves Musser, uh, which is also, by the way, sometimes translated as rebuke, then he'll have a life of failure. Uh, because if he is not willing to accept rebuke or, or instruction, then, by definition, he's bound to make mistakes. So the verse 
is a, a very general and universal verse. In, in a way, all of the other parts of the book of Proverbs, uh, you could argue, are details of this particular verse. So sometimes in Mishlei, we'll find a verse that's universal, and sometimes there's a verse that's very detailed, and this is one of those that's more um, universal. Okay, let me pause. Any questions up to this point? Okay, now a human being has free will to be guided by his intellect or by his emotions. And it's not that you get rid of one or the other, it's just a question of which one makes the decisions in your life. And, and by, so by emotions, if you were letting your, your life operate on the basis of emotions, uh, you might make decisions based on jealousy, or greed, or envy, or those kinds of things. Now, a rational analysis of those would show you that those emotions are irrational, and they will ultimately lead to some type of destruction for you. So Musser is designed to show you the best possible life and the incorrectness of the other types of life. So we have Musser and then there is also um, Halacha. And Musser and Halacha are two different sciences like mathematics and physics. They do have some meeting points, but they're not the same. Halacha is law, and we have to keep it. Musser is like, you could call it, ethical philosophy. So it's a particular uh, area. Uh, and Eva, you've mentioned frustrations uh, uh, cause emotions. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, it might be a little bit like a chicken and egg question. What do you suppose, let's, let's talk about that for a second, when a person becomes frustrated, what is what are they frustrated about in general? I mean, if, if for example, um, uh, the line at the bank is, you know, 15 people deep, and I have to wait for 15 minutes to deposit my check, and I become frustrated, what am I really frustrated about? What would you say? I mean, I'm frustrated that I have to wait in line, but what's, what's the more general case there? Why am I frustrated that I have to wait in line for 15 minutes? Okay, even good. It's, it's my time. And I don't want to spend my time that way. In fact, when I walked into the bank, I didn't expect that I would have to wait 10 minutes uh, or 15 minutes for the line. I expected to be able to walk right in, make my deposit, and be out of there in, say, two minutes. So now what's happening is I am bumping up against reality. The reality is that I wanted to be in and out of the... Or my desire was to be in and out of the bank in two minutes. The reality is it's going to take 15. So I'm frustrated. And why am I frustrated? I'll suggest it's because reality is not working out the way I wanted it to. I am bothered because reality is different than what I wanted. And I will suggest to you that every negative emotion that we have 
is because we are resisting reality. When the guy pulls in front of me on the freeway, I'm frustrated because I didn't expect him to do that and I did not want to have to slam on my brakes. When I go to the airport and I discover my flight is canceled, I'm frustrated because I wanted to get to San Francisco on the time frame that I had in mind, never mind that a hurricane or something just came through and they canceled the flight even for safety reasons. I wanted it to be this way, reality has it another way, and I'm frustrated because I don't like reality at that point. Reality's not measuring up to what I wanted. What creates my frustration and my and I'll suggest that frustration is an emotion. Okay? What creates my frustration in that case is my resistance to reality. Because if I just looked at it and said, oh, flight's canceled. Well, okay, uh, let's see, I'll make some calls, I'll sit down here and read a book, I'll have a cup of coffee, I see the next flight's in two hours, I've got my, uh, some good reading material with me. Uh, what a nice opportunity to, uh, to uh, settle down and, and relax a little bit, and I'll just call and postpone my meeting. I wouldn't be frustrated if I took that view. I'd just say, oh, this is reality. I'll now work out a practical plan to be able to deal with it. But it's that resistance that says it shouldn't be that way. They should have fixed it so I didn't have to wait in line. They should have fixed it so my flight was on time. They should have fixed it so I didn't have a middle seat uh, with a crying child in front of me. You know, it's that resistance to the reality that creates our frustration. Uh, and then that can escalate from, an issue, uh, from frustration into, into anger. And, and I'll suggest that anger is just a very strong resistance to reality. Because basically, the world didn't turn out the way I wanted, and now I'm mad that it didn't. Yet I wouldn't have any anger if I just immediately accepted, ah, this is the reality, what are my practical plans now for dealing with it? Okay? Does this make sense? This is a hugely important point uh, if, if, um, if you can get it. Uh, and it's one of those that you have to kind of think about, uh, you know, in almost every situation that comes up. When I look at the times uh, when I'm frustrated, uh, I don't think I could find a time when it isn't a case where I am somehow resisting reality. And if I would just flow with it and accept that, okay, that's the way that is, so what's my next step, then I'd be fine. It's the fact that I'm invested in it turning out a certain way that creates my frustration. Shalom, Kathleen. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining. Okay. So, and Kathleen, we are on Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. Um... And so let's get back to the verse. Um, the latter part of the verse, the verse reads, The way of life is to teach Musser, and to leave Musser will cause you to err. And we've defined Musser as the science of the consequences of your actions. So I'd like to suggest that the phrase to err means that you'll suffer the consequences. So if you leave uh, Musser, if you leave applying the science of consequences of your actions from your life, then you will suffer consequences, and the consequences will likely be negative. Um, so, for example, 
most people know that if you're fair-skinned and you go out with no sun protection on the first day of summer, you're going to pay the consequences. You'll get sunburned, and maybe really badly. Uh, and that's just the reality of the situation. But interestingly, people will sometimes look at emotions like envy and jealousy and greed, and they think they're bad, but they don't see that they lead to consequences and harm in the same way that standing out in the sun all day with no protection on the first day of summer uh, is also going to lead to a very definite and known harm. Um, you know, standing on the freeway uh, in the middle of the night uh, with no uh, lights shining is probably going to cause you to suffer great and painful consequences. We know about those, but we don't always look at the consequences of emotions uh, that may also trip, up, trip us up. So if we don't have that knowledge of Musser, then we'll often pay the consequences. And interestingly, in that case, we may not even see that we're the cause. And then what we'll do is we'll start blaming things around us. Uh, it's very easy for us not to see that we are the cause of our own difficulties. Uh, one of the sages, I believe it was the Rambam, uh, I believe, said that most of the problems that people run into and difficulties that they run into are ones they created themselves. Uh, but oftentimes we don't see that. And we could, in fact, be doing actions right now that in five or ten years uh, will affect us. You know, when you're, when you're young and in your 20s, there are a lot of things you can do uh, in terms of extreme sports, extreme eating, extreme alcohol consumption, and whatever. And, you know, you can get away with it and say, oh, I'm fine, you know, it's not a big deal, I felt okay the next day, or I was just a little run down, but I popped right back up and I'm great. Yeah, but you do that for 5 or 10 or 20 years, and you really start to get some consequences. So, uh, that's why leaving off Musser gets us into so much difficulty. Each of us has trained himself or herself to make decisions in a certain way. And given the right situation, that reactive way could be very harmful. Uh, for example, let's take a person that trains himself to react to situations by getting angry. I mean, some people do that. They just, you know, they get angry at almost everything. They'll yell at the ticket counter at the airport, at the ticket clerk at the airport. They'll yell at the bank teller. They'll be angry with the salesperson in the store. They just train themselves to do that. And they end up having fights with their spouse and maybe with the neighbors here and there. But what if a person reacted really, trained themselves that way, really reacted very angrily to their boss and punched their boss in the nose? Well, now, there are some serious consequences. You could lose your job. You could even potentially go to jail if you had a strong enough reaction. So the way that we train ourselves to make decisions becomes very, very important. And people tend to do what they are trained to do. Um, particularly when they're not thinking through it. So if we have taught ourselves to think through consequences and to do that every time we run up against a decision, then naturally when we run up against decisions, we'll tend to think that way. If I've taught myself to react emotionally or to to yell at people or to overreact or whatever, I'll also probably act that way 
in a pinch. And so it's very important how we train ourselves. Which brings us to the interesting question of what does it mean to guard Musser? Uh, it's a phrase that I think we will see in a number of places here in Proverbs. And what Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say was that guard means that you have to watch yourself constantly because your emotions can creep out at times when you don't expect them to. So you always have to be on your guard around this. You need to be aware that there's a part of you that does this. And you need to pick up on the ways that you operate that you don't necessarily even notice. Uh, and once you do that, then you can start looking at them and you can start undoing them. And for, for most of us, this is a lifetime process uh, of, of undoing these kinds of emotions. Even while we're studying other subjects in Torah and life is going on and so forth, we need to be constantly aware that these emotions are at work and to be on guard about that. This is what these emotions are, are, are generally always at work, and this is what we mean uh, what I understand Torah means by the evil inclination. It's the part of us that we don't recognize. Okay, It's not some wildly mystical thing. It's those emotions that cause us to act in ways that aren't rational and don't take into account appropriately the consequences of our actions. Let's uh, digress for just a moment. Uh, on evil. Let me pause at this point and make sure, see if we have any questions. Okay. Kathleen, welcome Pamela, great to have you with us. Um, ah, Kathleen, you've got, how do you get to the point of recognition? It's simply by, in, in my experience, by being aware and noticing and at first, I mean, this is not the type of thing where you suddenly overnight make a change. It's by like attending a class like this and going over the ideas that we're talking about and reviewing them over and over and over that here and there you will begin probably to notice, oh, I'm really upset by that. Well, wait a minute. What would Mishlei, what would Proverbs say about that particular situation? And as you begin to notice, then you can begin to say, hmm, yeah, I didn't like it that the, uh, the store messed up my order, but what's my practical response uh, right now? What will I do about it? Uh, I could take it back. I could keep what I have, whatever. And so it's just a case of noticing uh, and then making a, a choice as to you know how you want to look at that situation and what you want to do about it. I would not walk away from this class and put a big amount of pressure on yourself that you suddenly have to start operating differently. Because you can't, um, in my experience, you can't power yourself into doing this or pressure yourself into doing this or, or hammer yourself into doing this. It's a natural outcome of simply noticing the ideas uh, as, and noticing yourself in situations. And, and maybe at the end of the day, you spend a few minutes and look back on the day and say, hmm, what happened to me today? Well, gee whiz, I got upset about that situation. 
Why did I get upset about that situation? Well, because so-and-so said they'd meet me for lunch at noon, and I sat there until 12.30, and they didn't show up. Okay, uh, what other possible reactions could I have had to that? Well, I could have given them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they had a flat tire, maybe their cell phone went dead, uh, you know, and just look back at situations and analyze them without guilt, without shame, without uh, beating yourself up, and just be aware and, and let the awareness kind of do its work because what happens over time, and it's a drip, drip, drip process, what happens over time is these ideas can begin to affect you so that then after a while you get to a point where uh, you see it at the time it's actually occurring rather than after the fact. Uh, there's an old um, I think it's from 12-step programs, uh, an old poem uh, or a, a little thing that says, I, I walked down the street and there was an open manhole and I fell into it. And the next day, uh, I walked down the same street and uh, I saw the, man, the open manhole, but I still fell into it. And the next day, I walked down the street, saw the manhole, and walked around it. And the fourth day, I walked down a different street. So it's, it's just a little tiny bit at a time. Uh, and again, you can't, you can't force yourself into it in my view, uh, but you can just increase your awareness and the more you go over the ideas, uh, the more they become front and center in your mind and they start popping up in your mind at times uh, when they might not have before. Okay? Any other questions about that point? Okay. Uh, let's digress on evil for just a moment. Uh, just out of curiosity, let's, let's uh, have, a, have a question. If you had to describe evil or define evil, how would you define it? Just in a very short sentence or a few words or whatever. How would you define evil? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Kathleen, you've said evil is electricity. I'm not sure I understand what that means. Can you elaborate just a little bit on that? Okay, Pamela, the opposite of Hashem's will, but we'd have to then define what Hashem's will is. Okay, Peggy, you said evil is bad. Okay, but I'll I'll challenge you that that's a synonym. So, can we come up with a definition? Okay, as defined by Torah. Okay, we'd have to then we'd have to analyze what uh, what that is and okay and Kathleen, you've said evil seems to crawl like electricity. Okay, and Peggy, you've said bad actions. Okay. So here's an interesting uh, 
an interesting approach. And Pamela, let me pause because it looks like you're typing in one more thing. And I want to make sure we get that involved. Okay. So, there's a very famous sage. Ah, okay, Pamela, you've got a, very, a specific example. Torah says no murder, so murder is evil. Okay. So, there is a sage named the Sajigyan, and he holds, interestingly, that evil is ignorance. The evil is ignorance, which is a real different view than one that I'd heard before. So, for example, nobody says, well, I'm going to buy a bigger house than so-and-so because I'm jealous of their house. What they'll do is they'll come up with all kinds of rationales for buying the house, but everyone knows that they're buying it because of jealousy. However, they're ignorant of their real reason for doing it. And in our society, evil, evil often has a very strong connotation as in, wow, he's doing something that's really evil. And, and that, that word evil itself, you know, kind of reminds you of all the villains in horror novels and in horror movies. It has this sort of horrible, gruesome connotation to it. But in terms of the area that we're looking at, uh, which is ethics, which is just, we're just talking about that area right now. Evil is really about destroying your way of looking at life, and then you end up getting the consequences of your actions. So Sajigan is essentially saying ignorance in the sense of, as I understand it, you don't see reality. What you're seeing is something else, but it's not reality. So you're ignorant of reality, and by operating outside of reality, then uh, that, in it, by definition, is evil. So in the sense of ethics, Again, it's not a mystical thing, it's a very practical thing. Peggy, you ask, are you saying that evil is actions based on those negative irrational emotions? I think Sajigan is saying, even further, that evil is the ignorance. Now, out of that will come actions, and then we would say, those actions are evil, uh, because they're... Uh, not in line with reality. Uh, and actions that are based on negative irrational emotions would be evil by that definition because those actions, unless it were totally by a fluke, are going to be uh, not in line with reality. So, uh, so yes, I think, you're, I think you're correct. I think he's going even farther, as I understand it, and saying that the ignorance itself is evil. This gets to some of the verses we've talked about before about the fool. You know, the fool is one who doesn't have the knowledge and the wisdom. And so we can say that that person, from again, talking just from an ethics standpoint here, uh, would be evil because they're operating out of ignorance. So, if that's the definition, and this isn't a mystical thing, it's a very practical thing, then I would say that if we do something wrong, we shouldn't condemn ourselves like we're terrible. The guilt feeling should only prompt us to do an investigation to determine whether or not we did the right thing. 
Guilt is not a determiner of whether or not we did the right thing. This is a real important point to get. The real purpose of guilt is to prompt you to do an investigation to determine whether or not you did the right thing. Once it has done its job to prompt you to get involved in the investigation, the guilt serves no more purpose because as long as you're involved in the investigation, that's what you need to do. And then it's simply a practical thing. Then we're into practical actions. So, okay, did I do the right thing? Uh, no. Okay, what do I have to do now to clean it up and to fix it and uh, do repentance if that's needed? Uh, so the guilt is only there to push us to do the investigation, but we shouldn't sit around and beat ourselves up. Guilt feelings, in and of themselves, I would suggest, are of no benefit. They're only of a benefit if they motivate us to get involved in the world of thought. So if you feel guilty about something, there's no purpose in staying in that state. You need to move to analysis. What did I do? Was it correct or incorrect? Should I have done something different in that situation? And then we have to define those things very clearly to our mind so the mind can see it and move forward. Otherwise, you just get stuck in the guilt and you're just kind of, you know, it's like it's like wallowing around in, in thick molasses. You can't get anywhere. So this recognition, uh, it's, it's this recognition that is the cure for the evil inclination in allowing it to make decisions for us. It's moving to analysis and looking at the situation of very practically and making a rational analysis of what do I do. All of those things take constant review, which is what we've talked about before, so we naturally start thinking this way. And then we can guard our emotions because we have the ideas and the ideas become a part of us. Okay, so that's why we have to constantly be on guard to ensure that we're aware these emotions are operating and how they may be influencing us. Now, the verse says that the path of life is to keep Musr. So what's it mean to leave Musr? It means that even if you study it, but you don't guard it, then you can make mistakes. In other words, we have to uh, constantly be on guard, and we have to apply it. Uh, so the subject of the verse seems to be about how a person should relate to Musser. You can either guard the study, and it's constantly being used in your thinking, or you're studying and not guarding it, in which case it will be lost and you won't benefit from it and you'll make mistakes. If you don't have the study in the first place, then you can't get the benefit either way. Okay, So it's not like the science of mathematics or physics where you just have the information. You have to constantly guard it so you're using the ideas in your thinking and thereby you protect yourself from consequences. Okay, Any questions up to this point? Okay, now, let me go on. The Ibn Ezra, interestingly, learns this verse somewhat differently. He reads the verse like this. The way of life, comma, to have a good way of life, you need two things. You have to guard Musr and you have to leave the false or the Musr that's in error. Okay. So the first way we looked at the verse is that if you want to have the good life, you have to keep Musr. If you don't keep Musr, you'll err. 
But the Ibn Ezra says that if you want a good life, you have to keep Musr and you also have to leave the Musr that is in error. Now that seems easy enough, but we are surrounded in our society by people who want to tell us about how to live life all the time. Parents, teachers, various leaders, supposed experts, supposed voices of authority, and so forth. And if we're not careful, we can pick up on those ideas without even realizing it. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the idea that you, if you go outside without your coat on, you'll get a cold. People make universal statements uh, like that about life all the time. And people accept them, and they never question them necessarily or challenge them. And sometimes if you go out with maybe a friend or neighbor over a cup of coffee, uh, suddenly you have the greatest psychologist and philosopher sitting across from you, and they will be happy to tell you how you should live your life uh, and everything about it. And if you pick up ideas from those people about life, then you may be picking up false ideas. So you have to both pick up the positive life ideas from Torah, but you also need to be able to recognize and shed the false ideas that you pick up from others, including all those parents and teachers and friends and so forth which means you have to analyze the ideas that you're exposed to and determine is that correct or is that incorrect. Um, and you have to be very careful to be aware enough not to accept a false view of life. Uh, one of the, the phrases that I sort of coined based on learnings from Rabbi Moskowitz years ago was the most dangerous assumptions are the ones that we don't realize we're making. The most dangerous assumptions are the ones that we don't realize we're making. Uh, I stood up in front of, uh, uh, I think it was about 75 educators a number of years ago, and I've asked this question to a number of audiences, but uh, for them in particular, I said, for a million dollars, would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? And I said, how many people would reply yes? And I asked for a show of hands. Not a single hand went up. How many people would reply no? And I believe every hand in the audience went up. And I said, did anybody have a response different than yes or no? And there wasn't a single one. And then I said, don't you think before you give up the million dollars it would be a good idea if you determined whether the plane was on the ground or not? Because, in fact, if it were a Cessna 172 sitting on the, the uh, tarmac, it's about four feet from that airplane down to the ground. Remember, the question was, for a million dollars, would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? Now, what happens when most people hear that question is they automatically make the presumption that the airplane is flying, and they never question it. They're not even aware that they're making the assumption. But yet, there's a lot more information to be had if we ask questions around that. So when we hear ideas from other people, we have to ask questions, which is why we also try to do that in this class. So we need to be able to understand correct ideas and also be able to identify an idea that's false. And Proverbs is set up this way. You know, it shows us in a verse the correct view of life and the incorrect view of life. And then we discuss each case so we can see the difference between these. And this is different from other areas of study because, for example, uh, in mathematics, all you need to know is the correct idea. You don't need to know 20 incorrect proofs for a particular 
conclusion. But in the study of Musser, I need to know the incorrect views because I may have one of those and not even know it or recognize it. And by learning the incorrect views, it helps protect me from those so that I can recognize them and choose the correct approach instead. So, how do we protect ourselves against these kinds of false views? And an interesting related question to that would be, can we live according to that life without any errors? You know, is it possible to not have any errors in life? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to suggest that, yes, it is possible, maybe, for a rare few people. Uh, but I'd suggest for most of us, uh, and not everyone certainly has the ability to change their life to that extent. But most people have the ability to change their life somewhat. Uh, and I don't know exact numbers of, you know, whether everybody does or doesn't, but it seems like most everyone uh, ha can change somewhat how much we can change and whether we could go to the, to the, uh, to the limiting case of, of living life without any errors, I, I can't say. Uh, but most of us can do some changing. So how would I go about doing this uh, and how do I know how much I can change? And Eva, you've asked the question, can two people see reality differently? Yes, they can. Uh, but I'll suggest if we're talking about the physical world, there's only one reality. Now, we may see it differently. So, for example, uh, two people witness an automobile accident involving a red car and a green car. And um, one witness says, well, the red car pulled in front of the green car. And the other witness says the green car pulled in front of the red car. I mean, witnesses disagree all the time. And they and not because they're lying. I mean, they truly think that's what they saw. Um, but there's only one reality. I mean, one car hit the other one in a certain way if we're able to, you know, retroactively deduce uh, what that might be. So, yes, it is possible that people will see reality differently. Our job is to try to see it as clearly as we can so as to hopefully make the least number of mistakes, uh, avoiding negative consequences and having positive consequences in our lives. So I would submit to you that the only way a person changes is based on ideas. And as we go over these ideas and review them, there's a certain development that happens when we start thinking and operating differently. You start seeing things differently and you have a different view of life. Um, and a lot of the pain, as we discussed before, that we experience in life is from our own viewpoint. And by changing that viewpoint, we can reduce the mental discomfort that we end up inflicting on ourselves. So, in that sense, it's academic whether a person can change or whether they can't. Because our only job, and the only thing that we can practically do here, I'd suggest is to study the ideas and review the ideas and have discussions here and with other people and then the ideas begin to affect our view of life and once the ideas are clear to our mind then uh, that affects us in a way that helps us start to make decisions differently so that's practically what we can do we are uh, Kathleen you're, you're right we're changing our thought patterns we're changing the way we automatically react to things uh, simply by going over and over ideas and seeing them clearly. 
someone once said that uh, if you want to become a great general, you read all the battles and all the plans and so forth of the battles that have gone before us and why they went right and why they went wrong, and you analyze them. Not for the purpose of remembering them, not a memorization exercise, but because by going over them and analyzing them and thinking about them and so forth, the nature of strategy and war starts to become second nature to you. And when it becomes second nature, then you think that way. So then when you're planning a battle, all of that knowledge is second nature to you, so then you know how to analyze the situation and think about it. So I remember taking a martial arts class years ago, and the instructor said, I can't tell you what the enemy is going to look like when you meet him, or what situation you're going to find yourself in. All I can teach you are some principles, and if you go over and over those principles so they become so automatic, then when you run into the situation, uh, then you'll take those principles and basically, uh, I'll use the word improvise with them, based on your individual situation. They start to become automatic for you. So it's a training of thinking in a certain way. Um, uh, if you want to learn a particular area uh, of, of knowledge, you read the great people in that area. And if they made mistakes, then you analyze their mistakes. So you'll naturally think that way when you get into a situation. And you'll note that Torah does this for us. Torah doesn't try to make people into flawless heroes. You know, there are no, uh, there are no heroes, if you will, in Torah. The Torah is very open about mistakes that people, including the patriarchs, made. I mean, that information is right there. It's available for us to learn from when we go in and look at the stories in the Torah and the events that happened to those people. So, I'd suggest that um, that's, that's the approach. Now, people sometimes have a view of what they could call a perfect life. Um, the only problem with, with a view of a perfect life is that it, it isn't really based in reality. And we see this in lots of places. Um, you know, there are certain religious approaches where it's deemed to be a virtue to abstain forever from sexual relations. Uh, there are, there's the fantasy about, you know, the, the fantasy mom who can run a public corporation, serve on six boards of directors, lead the PTA, campaign against world hunger, be a perfect wife, and all while giving birth to unexpected triplets. And, and look, she's still smiling and cheery all the time. I mean, that's just not generally in reality. People aren't like that. And it, and it I would say, can be harmful to us to set those kinds of things up as reality. First of all, because some of them are against our nature, and we see in those particular religious approaches that take a more ascetic approach to life, where they want to deny uh, the physical body and its needs and so forth, that, that produces all kinds of problems. Uh, down the road. Uh, that's just not not being in line with reality. Putting expectations upon ourselves that are ridiculously um, uh, unrealistic also can put such huge amount of stress and pressure on us uh, that um, you know that that causes its own difficulty. So that kind of a view of perfection 
that isn't in line with reality is going to create difficulties. Um, and, you know, I may demand too much of myself. In other cases, I might not demand enough of myself. I have to understand the nature of man and my own self and what I'm capable of doing and what is realistically for me, realistic for me to expect of myself. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz made the statement, I believe, and I would totally agree with it, you shouldn't even try for something that is not in reality. We have to be realistic. Um, so, um, now, what if we could show that a certain thing is possible, but I'm not there yet? What about that? Well, we'll be talking as we go through uh, this, this class about methods we can use to get there, but there's no guarantee that I'll get there. I would suggest that the Torah is not asking us necessarily to be perfect, which is a very difficult, if not impossible, goal to get to. It's asking us to study the reality and then apply it and see how far we can go. And that's up to each one of us on our own abilities. Certain people have the ability to reach a certain level. Other people uh, can perhaps only reroute a certain amount of, of their emotional energy. Uh, just like, you know, there are some people that can maybe only study for an hour or two a day. And then that's like, that's their limit. If they try to push beyond that, it'll be harmful to them. Others, uh, certain, you know, Torah scholars, they could study 12, 15 hours a day. Uh, and, and, you know, they made great strides in doing so. It's not about setting up a person and saying, okay, I've got to be like him or like her. It's about being involved in the world of reality, both about the world and about myself and my own abilities, uh, and not heaping piles of guilt on myself because I'm, you know, not as, uh, you know, don't study as much as this person, or I don't run as fast as that person, or I can't lift as much weight as that person, or I don't cook as well as that person or whatever it might be. It's about looking at my own abilities and reality uh, and then seeing how far can I go. Okay. Okay. So let me pause there and see if there are any questions before I go on. Okay. Let's cover quickly a related subject and that is sin. Sin is used in two ways. Insofar as halacha, or Torah law, is concerned, you either did the act or you didn't. And it's basically a black and white thing. In order to do an act correctly, or avoid something that's prohibited, you have to know what the law is. And that's why it's important to study halacha, or the law. You don't get partial credit in halacha. Uh, you know, it's like uh, saying, uh, well, somebody that stole a nickel isn't as bad as somebody that stole $20. No, you're either a thief or you're not. There's either stealing or there's not. Um, when, when it comes to, for example, the, the, a fast uh, that the, the Jewish people uh, do, um, if the Yom Kippur fast, for example, uh, is 25 hours, and you fasted for 24 hours and then ate something. You didn't halakhically keep the command. That's it. Uh, it's not like you get sort of partial halakhic credit. It's just, it's either you did or you didn't. But as far as philosophy is concerned, and a lot, of, mostly what we're talking about in Proverbs is philosophy, 
The situation is slightly different. Someone once said, interestingly, that a righteous person is one who desires what the evil person does. A righteous person is one who desires to do what the evil person actually does. In other words, he dreams about what the evil person actually does. Now, according to this idea, a righteous person does the right act, but he may still have the old emotion that's drawing him to the wrong act. Now, you can undo the old emotion, but only through knowledge. Insofar as the action goes, you're obligated to do the correct action. Okay, and the only way you can undo the emotion that's driving you is through knowledge. It's true that we have to force ourselves to do the right physical action or restrain ourselves from doing a prohibited action when it comes to halacha, but you can't force a philosophical view on yourself. That has to come by the mind clearly seeing a true idea. So, for example, if, if I wanted to... Um, you know, shoplift. Okay, I have to force myself not to shoplift. Now, I may go into a store and still have the desire to shoplift, but I have to force myself not to because that's halacha. That would be theft. But changing that emotion that's driving that, that I can't force myself to do. That only comes about by my mind clearly seeing why theft is harmful to me and going over the true ideas around theft. That one I can't muscle myself into. I can muscle myself into doing the correct physical action. But in the area of philosophy, I've got to see the ideas clearly. So if, um, and, and again, that comes by the continual review of the correct ideas, similar to the example we just gave about becoming a great general. So if we go through this review and we see the ideas correctly, then we can slowly move away from the emotions and our mind can begin to take precedence over the emotions and see the truth clearly. So, for example, take jealousy. I mean, suppose you feel jealous. Well, there's one of two ways of undoing it. You can either buy a fancier car or a bigger house or whatever than the other person, or you can destroy the other person's car or house. And that, that's probably what an evil person would do, one of those. But a person who feels the emotion but acts correctly is still a righteous person as long as he doesn't carry out the dictates of his jealousy. Okay. Um, now, let me just look ahead at my notes because I see we have just a few minutes to go. Um, it does take many years to undo emotions and get emotions in line with the correct view. So righteousness is where my mind has the correct ideas and I live according to those ideas. But if my emotions aren't in line with that, that is not evil. Okay? The highest level of righteousness is not to even have the desire to do evil, but that's a very, very high level. Uh, a person can still be righteous and have the emotions as long as he does the correct actions. But if I turn around and I scream at somebody who doesn't deserve it or do some other action that's unjust, then I have an emotion that I'm going to have to deal with. Um, so, interestingly, if a person undid all of his or her emotions except one, then what he or she would really need is for God to put him in a situation 
where that emotion will be awakened so he can deal with it. Now I'd suggest for most of us the laws of nature which God created are sufficient to bring up emotions that we need to deal with and to show us that we're not living a rational life. I mean the things like uh, the you know airline flight gets canceled or the wind blows a tree that knocks my fence down or whatever and I get angry about it. Oh okay uh, there's an opportunity to deal with my emotions. Anytime something happens where I have a big strong emotional reaction to it there's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to see where I must have some unfinished business and emotionally and an opportunity to get in and, and look at that and analyze and understand why I still have that. So for most of us there's plenty of work out there to be done just by the things we get with the laws of nature. Note that this brings up a very interesting angle on the idea of having God intervening in your life. Because some people will say, well gee I really want God's providence in my life. Really? Are we sure we really want that? And are we sure we understand what that means? Because in some circles, I think there's an idea that having God's personal providence means I'll have everything that I want materially and I'll always be protected from everything. So it's sort of like having a combination of, you know, a big bank account and Superman all at the same time. But what that can mean is that it may mean that God will put us in a situation that will cause the emotions that we haven't dealt with to come up, thereby giving us a chance to deal with them. Now, that's great for the development of our soul. It is also quite likely to be pretty uncomfortable. So, uh, from a physical standpoint, life may be difficult, because God's putting me in a situation that is designed to help me undo my emotions. So it's going to be challenging. But from a growth and a soul development and the development of my character and moving myself to a higher level, that's a great opportunity. So I'd suggest that the things that come up to us every day in our lives that cause us to have big, strong emotional reactions are opportunities for us to be able to look and see what's causing that and to potentially go over the correct ideas and undo those emotions uh, so that we can move forward in a more rational approach. Okay, let me pause, and we've got just about, I think we're at the top of the hour. Um, any questions on anything we've covered or that verse? That was a long one, but a very, very important one uh, with a lot of key ideas in it. Any questions? And Pamela, you've said if we get angry and attack some inanimate object, I've learned that is idolatry. Um, I don't know halakhically, I would have to look into that, uh, whether or not halakhically that is idolatry. Uh, but it certainly, from a philosophical standpoint, is uh, pointing out that we've got some issue that we clearly have to deal with. Uh, and so, again, it's an opportunity for us to look and say, gee, what's causing that and uh, what do I need to do to, to uh, undo that so that I don't make that mistake in the future? Any other comments or questions? Okay. Well, in that case, thank you very much for joining this week. Uh, great to have you with me. and. 
Uh, I'll look forward to uh, joining with you uh, for class. We will have again class next week, but not August 30th or September 6th. So uh, we will have class next week, and I hope in the meantime that you all have a great week. Uh, and let me know if you have any questions or comments. You can email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com. Thanks so much, and enjoy your week.